Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay. So let's go ahead and get started formally. This is Don't Let It Go, my, my solo Wednesday show. I'm Amy Peacock, and I am very pleased today to welcome a Facebook friend for a few years now, David Cohen. He is a journalist and author from the Netherlands, and he was kind enough to send me a nice bio. So let me go ahead. Not and from the you. Netherlands, Amy. I mean, oh my gosh. <laughs> Did I do that again? Um, New Zealand. Yeah. I'm going to do that. I'm sorry. Anyway. It's funny, it's funny, isn't it, when you get something locked in your head, like you, you, you meet a woman called Joanne, and you think she's Wendy, and you keep on saying, I will never call her Wendy again, and then you do it. And I was talking about the news from Netherlands that they're starting to mandate certain business procedures with David before we got on. And so, yeah, I got it stuck in the head. And, and then I was saying New Zealand. So I'm, yeah, okay. I'm a professional. I really am. So let's go into our bio. Uh, David Cohen is a Wellington, New Zealand journalist and author whose work has been widely published both in New Zealand and around the world. His writings have appeared in New York Times. Well, impressive, The Spectator, Jerusalem Report, and The Christian Science Monitor. He is the author of six books with a seventh on the way. Uh, the latest book of which is called Book of Cohen, and it had to do with the late Leonard Cohen, so we'll talk about that. He describes his personal enthusiasms as poetry, philosophy, and Middle Eastern cooking. And we've done a bit of travel around that, which is exciting too. Uh, the last Middle Eastern cooking he has parlayed into a popular newsletter called Middle Feast, which he says is currently finding an appreciative readership at such a time when governments around the world have shut down the economy and told people to stay in their own kitchens. And if you want to find out about that newsletter, the place to go and to find out everything about David, it is editorial services, editorial services, NZ. Dot com. Editorial services nz.com is the website. So you find out about Middle Feast and all his books and his editorial services, as the URL tells us. So welcome, David. Thank you so much for joining me. Good afternoon. It's a pleasure to be with you, Amy. So just picking it's a funny out. Thing. We've, we've been, uh, until this week, as you say, we've had various connections online on Instagram, uh, on Facebook. Uh, I think we used to be on Twitter before I became appalled at that cesspool. Um, uh, but it's only this week that we've actually properly talked. It's yes. like we're old friends already. Um, no. But it, it's great to be on your show, and, and it's great what you're doing with it too. Well, thank you. I mean, I've only recently started back up, and part of it I was going to discuss with you in connection with Middle Feast. I love the recipes that you send out on Middle Feast and they look so good. And so much of that food is food that I can't have either yet, or I don't know if I'll ever, or who knows, because I've had all this huge digestive junk over the last 
you know, not quite year, I guess, but you know, it's been, oh. it, it was kind of percolating. And then last summer with mold exposure, it just went off the charts. Mm -hmm. So I've been battling with that. And um, I would love to get back to some of those really tasty recipes. But um, how did you get involved in that? I mean, what, what, how did you develop an interest in Middle Eastern cooking? I, I spent quite a bit of time in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. Uh, and many years ago, uh, it was uh, the day before I came back to New Zealand. And as usual, I was ruining uh, the fact that uh, I wouldn't be able to have shakshuka, which is a, an egg dish, sort of egg and spicy tomato mm -hmm. came out of North Africa. Uh, but the Israelis have sort of perfected it in, in a sense. Anyway, th there I am in Tel Aviv. Uh, um, thinking, oh gosh, I'll, I won't have a, another shakshuka breakfast for until next time I'm here or in some Arab country uh, nearby. And then I had uh, a sort of brainwave. Why don't I cook it myself? Why don't I learn to cook shakshuka? Uh, uh, it may not be as good as the stuff uh, I can get in Jaffa or Jerusalem, but... Uh, yeah. So I did that, I sort of toyed around, it's a pretty simple recipe. And then I thought, well, maybe I should get a book, maybe I should, uh, you know, have some friends from the region who can cook. And I invited them around and got them to sort of walk me through the, um, uh, the ropes, if that's not a mixed metaphor. Mm. Uh, uh, learning how to put an eggplant on a, on a gas uh, hob, uh, etc. Uh, anyway, but, so I learned the shakshuka, uh, learned how to do the tahini, uh, learned to, you know, chickpea salad. Um, this is more than a decade ago. Uh, and now I cook every day and probably about 90% of what I do is Middle Eastern, which is to say Turkish, oh. uh, Persian, which is my favourite cuisine, North African, and then uh, sort of Eastern Mediterranean, Syrian, Lebanese, Jordanian, uh, Palestinian, uh, and Israeli sort of, um, because that's a, a sort of blend of Arab on the one hand, uh, which is a superior in European cuisine, which tends to be awful. Uh, what's, awful what's awful about it? What's awful about European cuisine? It's ghetto food. Um, uh, it, it's, it's sort of food of necessity uh, and, and that's not a snobbish statement coming from me. I have an Ashkenazi background uh, in my family. Um, it's just awful food. I don't think, uh, I don't, uh, I don't know how anyone can say with a straight face that it's uh, some kind of banquet. Um, uh, although there are nice recipes there, uh, it's the Arab, you know, middle, the broader Middle Eastern foods, which and a lot of them are Jewish, by the way, too. Mm -hmm. um, that I really like. One of my books um, I, I co-authored uh, is a cookbook, a Middle Eastern cookbook, and as you pointed out, I do a newsletter mm -hmm. uh, that is finding a particularly appreciative audience right now or readership because I'm putting out 
recipes that uh, are fairly simple. No, and it's great what you're doing because then you're giving people a way to actually maybe during this time for the first time discover cooking in their own kitchens. And one of the threads that I've been, you know, picking up lately because, and I've had to do it out of necessity for health purposes, is that if you're cooking your own food in your own kitchen, you really know what's going into it chances are you're going to have less of all the horrible ingredients that make people generally sick. So you are probably helping to improve people's health to a large extent. Thank you. Inspiring them to do this. Thank you. There is a creative satisfaction in the process. There's a nutritional awareness. Um, uh, and it's, it, it brings people together. You know, the romantic idea of making someone a meal. Uh, it's not just a, a matter of mood setting. It's incredible trust. You sit down, you let somebody cook you a meal. Well, what you're sort of saying is uh, you're not going to poison me. Um, so it brings people together in a particular way. Uh, unfortunately, uh, right now it's a necessity as well. And I do feel sorry for people, a lot of the men, um, who might be unfamiliar with, with using the kitchen. Mm -hmm. uh, or might go out to restaurants all the time. Uh, these will be grim days. They are grim days anyway, but um, that will add add to the uh, um, to the difficulties. Well, I think I don't kind of follow the typical stereotypes, so I was not accustomed to cooking a whole lot myself. And then suddenly, with all the health issues, I had to start cooking a lot more. But because of those issues, I was out of the market for being able to cook a lot of the stuff that you have because there's a lot of carbohydrates whether mm -hmm. it be all kinds of various veggies a lot of the wonderful spices that you call for well, you in there. Deal with spices. some of them right and so i but you know again i don't want to go into all that right now but, but mm -hmm. you know the, the goal is to increase the tolerance over time sure. and become a customer and an appreciator of all of your cuisine because it's right. uh, it's it's some of my favorite as well. It's I just I love all the the flavors and the variety that you get. Yeah, the the gut issues are again uh, uh, once you've had if you've ever had them, uh, uh, that that's a whole revelation as well. Uh, the Greek word for soul, I, I believe, um, sort of um, is suggestive of one's one's stomach. Right. You know, gut, a gut feel. Um, and you sort of get that um, uh, an appreciation of that concept if things aren't going well. No, you, you really do. So my personal request is if you have more meat recipes, more meat-based okay. recipes, I could uh, probably take it at least as a foray. Some of the spices I can take in, in moderation and things like that. It's a, it's a, it would be good to have more variety. But, you know, we're doing some curries and things like that. So I'm not completely bereft of any interest in, in what I'm eating. But for a while, I was just eating meat and salt the way that so many of these healing people do. But the, the meat, you know, beef heals the gut like nothing else I've well, Jordan Peterson tried that diet, didn't he? And he's in pretty bad shape. Well, okay, but he's in, in bad shape not because of the diet, because of the drugs. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, he was he was taking those drugs. So that's a, that's a whole different topic. Mm. So mm. Middle Feast, anyway, um, the shashuka too, I want to try that. But I'm, I'm actually having, I think, some issues with eggs, believe it or not. Can you mm -hmm. believe that? Um, it's such a tasty thing. But 
uh, I'm, you know, I'm happy I've kind of gone down this path before all this COVID stuff hit. Mm-hmm. You personally and your family and friends and everything, are you being hit by this disease in any way or? Um, How's that affecting you? Uh, well, I mean, there's uh, on the macro or micro level. On the micro level, no, I don't know anybody that has been stricken with this with with Corona. Uh, um, on the wider level, of course, uh, one of the great paradoxes of the last four or eight weeks is that the world is the nation state has reasserted itself on the one hand, um, but on the other, the globalization of the experience is very apparent. Um, uh, so we've got a sort of fearful paradox. Am I am I hearing am I hearing sort of the implication that the one is bad and the other is good from you? The nation state maybe asserting too much power. Is that your sense or? No. Well, I think some of these supra-national um, entities like the UN uh, uh, and possibly the World Health Organization, I wouldn't know, um, uh, the EU certainly have revealed themselves to be threadbare uh, during this latest emergency. So I'm not asserting a, a broad principle. I can you know, certainly see multilateral bodies and treaties and alliances uh but the i you, you know the worship the deification of entities like the un um is has been found phenomenally wanting um uh would nation- you so so that's yeah. an interesting you know what is your vision of the proper role of an international organization a national government, uh, local government during something like this, some sort of a pandemic. And then, you know, again, you say you've been disappointed in the international level. Have you been more satisfied at the national level there in New Zealand, at the local level? How has that played out? Uh, In New Zealand, um, the response, this is not precisely answering the question, but but I can securitously get back to it. Um, In New Zealand, the response has been pretty good. Uh, New Zealand is blessed uh, with a number of advantages that most other countries don't have. Uh, We're tremendously isolated. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have a a small um, population, uh, about that of South Carolina. Uh, uh, we don't have porous borders, we're sea-locked, and I think we don't have air pollution issues, which I understand have some bearing on uh, mortality rates. Uh, And also, um, so those, those are advantages, whoever was in charge of the country or in charge of the government. Um, Our government was, however, pretty uh, responsive, Uh, was one of the first in the world, for instance, uh, to shut down um, uh, 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 flights from from China, Mm -hmm. from the the virus heartland. Uh, So, um, you know, here the government in 
the emergence during the emergency has been uh, very difficult. I'm a federalist by inclination. I like I like the American system. I like fifty governments. Uh, right. I'm a Tenth Amendment fundamentalist. Okay. Uh, but that is challenged at a time like this, when you've got um, you've got you've got an emergency. Uh, you've got an enemy, an unseen enemy, swarming in, um, and you've and you've only got a matter of days or hours to formulate a response. Right. Uh, in that situation, the old checks and balances uh, deal becomes very difficult, um, and so that's been challenging to observe and to think about. So you would say even in the United States, which is huge and arguably has been affected differently in different areas by COVID, that you think that the federal government would, you know, should take a larger role? Well, of course it can't as far as I as far as I'm aware, the Tenth Amendment. Well, Trump seems to think he can, right? He had the press conference the other day where he said that his authority was absolute um, over governors. And so they set up this kind of battle between, there are groups of governors who are saying that they want to get together and coordinate for their mm -hmm. region, sort yes. of a, you know, a phase in plan to try to get back to normal life. And he's saying, well, no, you know, this is, I'm the president and I have total authority. and you know, how dare you come and ask me for emergency supplies on the one hand and then say that you're going to go off and decide this yourself on the other. So there's, there's this current tension and difference of opinion about it. Right. Uh, I mean, I should say as a, as a non-American, uh, even though I have two American children, um, I, I, I don't want to sound pompous uh, uh, and, um, as if I know better than people in the U.S., but just speaking as a fan of the US system and someone who's given a little bit of attention uh, to, to, to governments uh, in the States, um, it seems uh, abundantly clear that each state has the right to um, set its own response. Um, it wouldn't matter who was president, whether it was Barack Obama or Thomas right. Jefferson, he couldn't say, he has no constitutional authority to declare an emergency. Moreover, that could be challenged in the courts, and we just don't have the time uh, uh, for that. Um, uh, it, it seems a state-by-state -state thing. The other thing is that the President Trump, if he wants to be in charge, uh, he should explain exactly what he's going to do. Um, it's not enough to be aspirational and say, I want the economy working, I want um, people back in church and, uh, and et cetera. Mm -hmm. what's, the, what's the plan? Presumably, if he, if, if he did have a plan, uh, most, most governors would say fine. Um, but he, he, I'm, I'm not, does he have a plan? It, it seems not to be a plan that would be based on anything. And sometimes he'll throw a date out there to see if it sticks, it sounds like. But I haven't heard a set concrete plan. The last that I heard is now 
there are a group of business leaders who have been pressing him. We need more testing because one of the things that we need is, um, you know, and, and I, I agree with you just, you know, for the, for the record, you know, I, I know that you probably uh, do not consider yourself to be an objectivist completely where we, you know, I say that the proper role of government is only to protect rights, but I agree with you that this is an emergency. And so therefore that there are certain roles that government would properly have for a limited time frame mm. now that it wouldn't mm. normally assume. So I do agree that a lockdown was probably an appropriate measure now yes. in part because our system, our healthcare system in the United States has been atrophied by government intervention for decades. And so where there is a real need to flatten the curve and all that stuff. So, you know, good lockdowns, but now we need to figure out a way out. And you're right, there has to be a concrete plan. That concrete plan, as I see it, needs to rest on testing. Then because testing is inherently limited, no matter how much the government opens the floodgates and allows it to happen, um, you need to use that data that you get from testing and perhaps the type of apps that Apple and Google have now proposed using contact tracing and things like that so that you can use the information, the limited information from testing to the best possible use, you know, get the most bang for the buck and uh, really help people uh, use the testing resources wisely, tell people who need to get tested because they were at this place with that person who was COVID positive at, you know, whatever time, that kind of thing. And then of course, common sense precautions. They're talking about having people wear masks at least in certain contexts for a certain period of time, still banning large gatherings for a while and things like that, all of this, you know, we need, but as you say, we need a plan. Um, and I, of course, agree with you, you know, he's out there challenging these governors and he seems to have the idea that if they need him for some supplies, that therefore they have to listen to him in making these plans to open up their economies as well. That's what he's tweeting out there. You're missing it on Twitter, I'm telling you, David. Mm. You're missing his wonderful tweets, but that's what he's telling them. And everybody who has any sort of legal background is saying back to him, what about 10th Amendment? What about checks and balances? Mm. And as if he's forgetting that, you know, where in the Constitution does it say that he can assert absolute authority over this? Right. Um, for a lot of us outside the US, uh, Andrew Cuomo, in particular in New York, the governor uh, has been a lot more presidential than the president. I'm not a Trump hater. I don't have, a, you know, I don't froth at the mouth over him if he does something good. Um, I hope I'm big enough to acknowledge it. Mm -hmm. um, leaving that to one side, uh, uh, Cuomo has been the man on the stage. Um, uh, and also just intellectually more credible over this. Of course, he was the one, those six governors, I think, uh, uh, out in the Northeast, uh, working uh, for a sort of inter-jurisdictional uh, solution, um, uh, which of course is absolutely necessary. I mean, you can't have something just in New York where you can cross the bridge uh, yes. over to New Jersey or, um, you need that whole region accounted for. Um, this is practical, factual, data-driven stuff. Um, it's not just saying, I want to see everybody back in church by Easter. 
No, exactly. And over in the left coast, as I like to call it, uh, we've got California working with Oregon and Washington State. Mm -hmm. That's what Gavin Newsom of California has been yeah. proposing. But Newsom has, uh, I think, not impressed me in the way that at least Cuomo, at least Cuomo doesn't really disgust me in any way you know Cuomo of course, he, he hasn't really disgust me in any way Cuomo oh. you know? and and you got to give it to the guy that he has been dealt a really tough situation to deal with there in New York City there's certain things about New York City that you know just like you were saying there's certain advantages to New Zealand there are certain disadvantages to the city which is all the public transportation and everybody in those closed compartments in the subway you know spreading it everywhere and they close down late and everything as well so there's he's he's had it very tough and and seemed to have handled it pretty well uh you're an objectivist um uh, ayn rand of course uh, loved manhattan loved it uh, uh worshipped the skyscrapers crafted novels around that i wonder what she would have thought of this. And I don't often find myself sitting down thinking, oh, I wonder what Ayn Rand would think about this. Mm -hmm. But I do about New York City. Mm -hmm. um, and it's an open-ended question. I mean, how, how would she have uh, responded? Well, well as, as far as I can tell, there are disputes a bit among objectivists as to mm. whether a lockdown oh, yeah. was appropriate at all during this time. And some people are saying it really doesn't qualify as an emergency. Um, I did think that it qualified as an emergency because of, you know, again, data driven, right? How big is the threat? Um, and how likely is it that the doctors and nurses at the hospitals were gonna be overwhelmed and, you know, and you've, you see the stories every day about doctors and nurses dying after treating COVID patients. And it's because, you know, I think obviously they work super long shifts and it's got to be exhausting and psychologically traumatic during this time for them, very stressful. And then at the same time, they're being probably bombarded with a huge viral load. So I call it, you know, a viral load and psychological load. At the very least, so many of us objectivists have had so much respect for healthcare workers and doctors such that we have for many decades been fighting against the socialization of medicine and that's a lot of time and resources so from my perspective it is completely in one's personal selfish interest to want to stay in and help ease the burden on them as if insofar as you see that your actions can make a real difference in in that regard and then also that while normally I'm not necessarily for any sort of a heavy-handed government intervention, I do think quarantines are sometimes a proper function of government. And that in this case in particular, you know, whereas maybe if we had a complete free market system, it would have been agile enough to deal with this emergency. We are not in that situation. And we've had, you know, I don't think New York was actually overwhelmed in terms of number of ventilators needed. And I'm hoping that continues to be the case, but it looked like it was going to be that, particularly if you didn't have these measures. And I think in California, many of the areas have been very lucky, or not even lucky, I would say that the measures of staying home have paid off. Right. And we have not overwhelmed the healthcare system in the way that we might have. And that means, you know, these 
healthcare professionals that you have not contributed to making their work conditions horrible during this limited time period. And I, I think it's valuable. I'd also be interested to know whether in California you've had what we've had here in New Zealand, which is what I think of as a certain fetishization of quarantine. It's as if Judaism, Christianity and Islam have vanished from the stage and we now have this religion called stay at home. Mm, uh, right. Uh, there's a sort of, you, you know, if this uh, had all been presented as uh, an, a sort of necessary evil, quote unquote, yeah. uh, a very highly regrettable short-term uh, uh, situation yes. to be rude every day yes. because locking people up is uh, uh, non-criminals is not, is a bad thing. Yes. Um, on that basis, most sort of halfway rational people could agree. Um, I find the, 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 this fetish thing um, uh, 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 in, in my global neck of the woods uh, highly distasteful. Um, what's it like in California? So we've had similar, and of course the most nauseating things come out of government agencies where you know they'll have some sort of little public service announcement or graphic that they put up you know and well lockdown and we're not going to tell you how long it's going to be or you know give you any hope about this we really we're not even getting that impatient about it you know but uh, here are all these psychological services for you and call this number and everything as if that's going to really help the situation and no, you know, there is an essay by Rand that I talked about on one of my shows. It's called The Ethics of Emergencies. And in that it's essay, that philosophy who needs it? That is in Virtue of Selfishness, the oh, book okay. called Virtue yeah, mm -hmm. of Selfishness. And she says in there, yes, and it's kind of in passing because the, the emphasis in that essay is on the way philosophy is typically taught in colleges where they try to derive the appropriate ethics from starting with some lifeboat scenario, which is not the way to come at ethics, right? But it's done all across the country in undergraduate intro classes. But in any event, she says in passing, yes, in an emergency, one should help one's fellow man. But what is the focus? The focus is, as you say, to get back to normal life as soon as possible. And yes, there's a role for making fun out of being at home to the extent that you can make the best of it. And I was going to ask you, I want to ask you about how you're writing because you have a new book that you're working on during this time. All of us are trying to do different things to make the best of it, but don't make it into something that you just resign yourself to as now the new normal. And certainly don't, you know, there is this sort of kind of fetish just like, oh, let's go on Instagram and make it look like stay home is the best party ever in the world. No, you know, that that wouldn't be the appropriate response. It is making a virtue out of psychosis. Um, uh, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, you mentioned virtue of selfishness, uh, Rand's collection of, of essays on ethics. Um, that's that's a, the title, of course, is a provocation. Sure. Um, but what 
we're talking about, and again, we agree on, is far more of a provocation, which is, you know, the virtue of, uh, of imprisonment. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, there was some online Facebook discussion I jumped, well, didn't jump into, I, I observed yesterday, uh, somebody talking about Australia and New Zealand uh, saying that these two countries should just have a number of months more of quarantine. Months. Uh, uh, and and I, 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 I briefly sort of danced in uh, to the discussion um, and sort of made the unremarkable point that, uh, you know, when the money runs out, everything runs out. There won't be a medical system. Uh, to which somebody said, um, uh, what is he said, uh, money is never a problem for governments. So in other words, you just, you keep on printing. You just it, print right? money. Yeah, but you yeah. could, you know, the money is worthless if there's nothing to buy because nobody's making anything. Precisely. And, you know, the, the news that I just saw, and it's probably true globally, was that retail sales had, other than essentials, as they call them, have just taken a dive. Like like has never happened. They the graph went all the way back to 2000, and the line, the dive that it took, the red line was just you know so many times longer, a few times longer than any of the longest lines in any of the recession. You know the dip that it took. Right. So it's 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 scary stuff. And and no, we we need to get going. And you know I was I was talking with the neighbor. I don't want the neighbor to hear, but that. Um, he was he was saying, oh, you know, I have this trip planned in August and I hope I can take it. And I'm thinking, you hope that we're going to go. No, of course, we you must be able to take whatever trip you want in August. That is bizarre that mm -hmm. people are even thinking that that's an acceptable possibility. On the other hand, there's news from North Carolina, I believe, that says that some people are actually out there actively engaging in protests to say end the lockdowns now and the lockdowns now is a hashtag on twitter at least you know so pe Good. people are starting to do uh, i interviewed the two doctors last friday who are putting forth a plan to get businesses certified as safe to go back to work in terms of either being COVID free or they have the appropriate practices, you know, of distancing and things like that within their business. And they're doing advising and testing to help people get back to work. That's the premise. It's, you know, we have an emergency. Let's, you know, do these sort of emergency measures for the least amount of time necessary to get people back to normal. That's the purpose of, of any help that you give in an emergency. Somebody could write and maybe I should, or maybe you should, uh, an essay on the kind of quasi-religious aspects to all this. Uh, you know, we've heard, I mean, I mentioned the stay-at-home religion, um, but what we're seeing every week um, is so many assumptions changing. Um, uh, and it, so I'm pleased I'm quite Socratic, you know, I, I'm absolutely sure that I know very little. This is my life experience. Um, that's quite a good uh, starting point because we've seen a, an awful lot of people who would claim that they do know a lot, uh, rather changing uh, their minds um, uh, uh, quite a bit. 
um, for instance, the, the, the projections, all the projections. Well, are they changing their minds or are they willing to shift in light of new evidence that's coming forth? Well, it's rather unfortunate that, some, that, that a number of uh, a formidable policy decisions have been taken on the basis of 20 zillion people dying, for instance, in the United Kingdom, uh, uh, give or take, according to Imperial College London, uh, that number keeps on going down. Um, uh, I think it's at about 14,000 or 16,000 now. Uh, who knows how low it will go? Um, but the measures that have been taken uh, uh, have, have, have been big. Um, but it, it's not just that. It's notions of how, this, how corona spreads. <clears throat> uh, you know, in New York, um, they've closed parks, you know, people walking yeah. through natural parks, no, not just tiny little parks on the corner of, uh, you know, Queens. Large um, parks uh, where people could upstate, spread up, easily, yeah. yeah. Uh, upstate, where the deer roam and all that. Uh, this is just superstitious nonsense. Uh, initially, we heard six feet, stay six feet apart, uh, because the, the virus can, you know, uh, which, which sounds sensible. But now people are talking about 45 feet apart. Uh, you you know, we've, we've heard about surfaces, uh, you know, I'm not preparing that, but, but um, the narrative just keeps on changing. Your cell phone can give it to you. Uh, remote tribes in Brazil um, that have, you know, haven't had contact with the outside. With the cell phone or anything, yeah. Yeah, yeah uh, apparently are getting coronavirus. Well, is it being beamed in from outer space? Uh, you know, there have been narratives about China, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I mean, the, the, the bald facts are, are disgusting enough. Mm -hmm. uh, but it, it, again, it is so um, clear how little we know. Right. Um, and, and that's where you can say, okay, um, it definitely did appear to be an emergency which in my mind, especially given the current state of where we are, required some sort of a government response. The way I look at it, you know, because again, I think you and I are different on overall political philosophy. I envision a much more restricted role for government than you do, I assume, in general. But nonetheless, we are where we are. And so just as I would not be in favor of getting rid of Social Security all at one time tomorrow, just because it's wrong. I actually think that program is wrong, that government shouldn't be doing that. I, still, I would phase it out because that is the best thing I think, the most humane thing to do under the circumstances. And most people that I know in objectivism would say, yes, you phase that out. You don't propose that you're just gonna immediately drop it tomorrow. Similarly, I think if we went cold turkey on government intervention in coronavirus, because you know that in you know the utopia, the ideal situation, our healthcare system and everything would be agile enough to respond to an emergency like that, at least. Ebola is maybe a different kind of story, but you know, this is more like a turbocharged flu as John Taylor of Duran Duran described it. He had it, by the way. Uh -huh. um, yeah, turbocharged flu, right? Um, normally that wouldn't be an emergency, but it appeared with the use of ventilators and the requirement of ventilators and the 
number of them and all this stuff, it appeared to be an emergency where there was an appropriate response. So, but nonetheless, it's limited, that's it. And, and so now we should be on the premise of getting back to normal starting tomorrow. Okay, how, how, are, how are the figures out there? I mean, because I here locally, I'm in Orange County uh, in California, and we have seen in the last couple of days quite a bit of drop in the number of new cases. We had only nine on one day, and this is a population of over 3 million. We had only nine new cases, and then we had uh, 23 the next day. So, you know, it's all within this kind of small. How many deaths have you recorded? I think it's 17 of the 3 million. Right. So it's comparable like that. To, that, that is comparable to New Zealand. New okay. Zealand is 4.8 million. Okay. Uh, it's had nine deaths. Okay. Uh, and the rolling average at the moment for new cases is about 17 or 18. Um, pretty Are you pleased with the testing that's been available there? How is that going? Uh, We've had a comparable amount of testing to the state of New Jersey. Uh, and given that out, out east, out left, as you say, uh, um, you know, that, that's where the crisis has really been. Mm -hmm. um, that's not bad uh, for New Zealand, a country where... Well, you know, for, we're all complaining here, right? Because we're on the premise and we, we keep seeing this. Our FDA is still bottlenecking the availability of tests and antibody tests in particular. So I don't know that you should be happy with that as a benchmark. You guys should try to compare yourselves maybe more, maybe more with Singapore or Korea or something right. where they really got it under control. Yeah, well, the antibody uh, uh, testing is, is, you know, as, as I'm sure anyone listening in uh, knows, that is absolutely key. Uh, my personal belief is in the state of California in particular, uh, that this virulent uh, strain has been circulating for months. Um, uh, I can't think of any other explanation for why the state of New York has had 12 times uh, uh, more, more fatalities um, than the state of California. Uh, yeah, California went into lockdown, what, three days three days earlier or something. Uh, there are a few differences, but basically it's the same, same advice. The outcomes have been hugely different, even allowing for the um, density of, of New York City. Um, but that's just late night speculation by, I mean, who am I? But then who is anyone? I mean, Andrew Cuomo doesn't know. Amy Peacock doesn't know. Antibody tests will give us give us a, a basis because it's going to look really ridiculous if we discover that a, a fifth or a third or you know a quarter of the state of California was basically immune to the condition and, and well being well locked. and then there you know a number of the experts are speculating about the amount of immunity that you do get and so I heard Amish Adalja who's you know, he's an objectivist, actually, who but he's just mm -hmm. been the voice of reason on this. If you see his sure. clips out there, he's excellent. And he was talking, I believe, yesterday about the fact that unless the viral count, the load is up to a certain level, then you may not actually have immunity. And there are people who have actually been sick who end up, don't, they don't make antibodies up to the requisite level to confer immunity for themselves for any 
period of time, as far as he knows. But again, this is a, it's a moving target. And that was really kind of the diversion that I went down, which is, I don't know, some people I do think have changed their minds because though their positions have been more geared from policy, you know, it's a policy motivation for their position instead of being driven by the science and the evidence. But because this has been a moving target and there's been so much that we don't know about this, you know, for instance, ventilators, they were the standard of care. And then very and now they could people be killing say, people. Right, right. And I think a lot of people are trying to do their best in the face of that. Uh, the one thing is the, the recommendation to not wear face coverings, I think at first was motivated by a desire to save the masks, the supply of masks as much as possible for healthcare workers and other uh, people like that. There may have been a policy motivation. So I felt like the switch, you know, it, it's common sense that with a respiratory illness that a face covering, if used properly, could confer some benefits. That right. sort of thing it does change. Oh, I think what all this underscores is a, a philosophical principle that knowledge is open-ended. I mean, we have our principles, mm -hmm. they're axiomatic. Um, well, not all principles are axiomatic. We can get into philosophy if you want, but... Oh, okay. <laughs> well, well, okay, well, we're, we're, uh, let's. Um, yeah, we uh, should. If, if you like, but, um, but the situation does underscore that um, you know, knowledge on in any areas is, is open-ended. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the principles are enduring, um, but the knowledge can change day by day. Unfortunately, um, uh, this, is, this has life or death aspects to it. It's not just uh, what kind of guy you go out on dates with. No, and we're all scrambling to find out, you know, what supplements should I be taking to boost my immune system sure. versus not. And there are certain things, you know, so the, yeah, we've all been scrambling from any perspective, whether we're individuals just trying to gear, gird ourselves against it and prevent getting it, or mm -hmm. if you're, you know, healthcare workers trying to actually treat people. So it has changed a lot. So let's shift a little bit. You know, again, you and I don't agree that this is nirvana to stay home all the time, but have you been making good progress on your latest book? Tell us about your book that is going to come out. You said this year, right? And how it's going. Hopefully, hopefully this year, if the stores are open, both online and physically, uh, I try to do a, a, a different sort of book um, each time. So I've, uh, one of my books is about um, autism, mm -hmm. uh, um, Another is about the academic life. Uh, I've written, uh, co-written a cookbook, as mentioned. Mm -hmm. uh, one about youth crime. Uh, my last book was about um, my namesake from Montreal, uh, Leonard Cohen, uh, as you um, mentioned in the uh, intro. Uh, and my next one is about, I'm trying to think in Californian terms here, uh, extremely obscure. Uh, former New Zealand Prime Minister. Uh, he's now 85. And over the past year, uh, we've set aside Friday mornings where we talk about life, the universe, uh, religion, uh, Ireland. Uh, his name's Jim Bolger. He was a three-term Prime Minister. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so, the, so it's a sort of conversational study. Uh, yeah. 
in all going well, that will be out uh, in um, August or September. Uh, uh, and it will be printed in North America as well, because he is a former Prime Minister. So there will be some academic interest. Uh, but it's not an academic study at all. It's very breezy, very conversational, quite personalised. What has been your favourite conversation so far that you think will be included that we should look forward to in the, in the book? What? Oh, um, I like, I enjoyed the interludes about religion, uh, and in his case, the Catholic Church. Uh, what is the relationship there between religion and state? Well, he would see, he would argue that there's none. I mean, he's okay. quite sensible on that. Okay. Um, but again, the, the part of the motivation for the book um, was that he was a leader who seldom talked personally about himself. Mm. Uh, and so 20 years after he, more than 20 years, after he stepped down from being prime minister, uh, or rather was deposed by one of his colleagues, uh, I wanted to stick with the personal stuff. Uh, um, so the book will have very little about policy and uh, sort of governmental decisions and so forth. Um, as I say, I'm not a political historian and nor would I wish to be thought of as one or ever aspire to be one. Um, so that's, that's, that's it. And after this book, I would... Uh, I quite like to do another cookbook. Okay, and so you would do the cookbook on because you said you already wrote about Middle Eastern cuisine, right? Mm. With your co-author. Yes. So, what would the next cookbook be? Uh, I'm not uh, at this point. I'm not sure, but I just sort of feel that that's that's what, where I would like to go. I think the current emergency has underscored for me how much people like this stuff, and it makes people happy. It's like being a massage therapist or something. You, 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 you know, people leave feeling better than when they came in. Uh, and it's the same when you can give them good recipes and inspire them, um, particularly guys and, and people who haven't really tried it before. If you can inspire them to... Uh, to so you, you could be the Jordan Peterson of cooking, where Jordan Peterson has all the men who are cleaning up their rooms and everything. And he took per particular right. pride in that. So I'm going to have so, a chapter like, like clean up your kitchen. Yeah, right. okay. Yeah, I, I hadn't thought of that. Um, the other thing is if our economy tanks, and I don't think it's absolutely clear that that's going to happen. Um, I do think it could be a snapback. But if the economy goes down in the short or medium term, uh, then some cooking skills, uh, there's another good reason for cooking skills uh, for most of us, because it's a cheaper way to eat. Uh, well, I'd and I've, I've got the health angle, right? So again, the more you're cooking at home, the less processed food you are eating, more mm -hmm. likely you're going to make healthier food choices. And there's, you know, a whole angle on this in terms of what sort of diet and lifestyle makes you more susceptible to a virus like COVID. Some people mm -hmm. are using this as a wake-up call. So anything that you can do to help them cook more efficiently and have a better time doing it and enjoy the result in their own kitchen will be greatly appreciated. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I'm inclined to do something like that. I should add uh, that this is not 
the United States where I'm seated uh, and, 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 and doing books is for ego uh, or creative satisfaction. Uh, it, it's, uh, it's not anticipating huge sales. Well, but but I'm, I'm, I'm sending everybody to your website to check out your books and you will, they, they will be shipped uh, internationally if people so oh, yeah. choose, I understand. So yeah, mm -hmm. editorialservicesnz.com. We're continuing. I'm not, I just mm -hmm. drop it in there every so often. Uh, your latest book is about Leonard Cohen. And of course, part of, I think you're fascinated with him. You've worked in the past as a music critic as part of your journalistic career. Is that correct? That's where I began. Okay. Uh, uh, so I, uh, um, so got into journalism circuitously. I was a music writer uh, when I was very young, uh, in my early 20s. Um, so that, that gave me a basis for uh, writing about music. I was, actually was a very bad music writer. Uh, so the book on Leonard Cohen, I'm no longer very young, as should be obvious. Um, the book on Leonard Cohen, it was not so much an exercise in writing about music um, because I still don't feel I'm uh, terribly adept at that. Uh, um, but it, 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 why, why don't you think you're adept at writing about music? I mean, I have this discussion with friends all the time and friends will make fun of me for my music tastes, but you know, you must have some, you think, objective assessment of why you're bad at writing about music. Why? Um, I, I think I have the same problem that Ayn Rand had uh, when it came to aesthetics, and that is that I lack a vocabulary to, 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 um, to convey ideas and experiences uh, in, in the arts. I think I'm okay. I think I used to be rather appalling, um, and I'm not being self-deprecating here. Um, I also, you know, I, I mentioned Rand because that's sort of a, a part, part, part of the show. Um, it, I, I do think that was one of her deficiencies. Um, it was was the. And what what have what have you read of hers that you're drawing upon when making that evaluation? Uh, the book that she did on aesthetics. Um, okay, so you, in, in terms of her writing explicitly about aesthetics, you thought that she didn't have the total vocabulary that would be necessary to do that well, in your opinion. Yes, and this uh, I can actually hook this back to Lena Cohen as well, um, and, and objectivism. Um, but no, I think that that was one thing she didn't get very well. Um, uh, I'm just looking for it. This... Uh, Playboy interview with Alvin Toffler. Mm -hmm. I love it actually. It's a terrific, terrific interview. But in, in that as well, uh, she tried to put forward a notion about the arts, um, which, as opinion goes, is okay. But when you say it's objective with a capital O, you get into problems so 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 what what in particular did you think was problematic that she said um, not so much problematic as audacious to say well Dostoevsky has a certain sense of life I, I happen I, I like Dostoevsky a, a lot um, uh, so I don't vigorously disagree with the with the particular but 
to say, oh, you know, Dostoevsky had a magnificent sense of life or whatever. I'm not quoting her, but, mm. uh, uh, but Tolstoy was malevolent mm. and mystical. I, you know, those sorts of judgments, rhetorically, they're great. They sound good. They, they make good copy. But they're sort of nonsense, really. Well, and so there has actually been, you know, within the objectivist movement, I've been married to Leonard Peikoff, and he gave a course actually later talking about the survival value. I think this is what it was called, the survival value of great but malevolent art. And went into a number of these examples. And of course, he was a appreciator of Beethoven and you hear the rumors that she disapproved and things. So there has, there has been in terms of, you know, adhering to the list of concretes that she either approved of and liked or disapproved of or whatever, uh, there's been a, you know, kind of a, a movement away from any of that. Right. So that, yes, of course you can get value out of things that are more malevolent. It can still be, great art, et cetera. Um, the place where I think sh you would have more agreement, of course, is in non-objective art. So that if you have something that's just kind of a smear on the wall, is, as opposed to an actual painting that's more representational, those sorts of issues, people would tend to have agreement. But these are sort of arbitrary preferences, I think, to some degree. Uh, uh, it, you know, representative art versus abstract art. Um, yeah, there's a skill, I'm sure, to what Jasper Johns did. Uh, uh, not, not to my personal taste, but again, I lack. I would lack the vocabulary to, to explain why Jasper Johns is, um, is somehow occupied a much, much lower rung to I don't know Da Vinci or. Or, or, or whomever, um, and at the very least, I think these sorts of judgments should be prefaced by, well, in my opinion, it's like um, I know I have noticed, and we will get back to Leonard Cohen and just oh, yes. paragraphs because the, the, there is a relevance here. Mm. Um, I have noticed uh, among objectivists now and then. Um, a tendency to mimic Rand's particular taste. Mm -hmm. uh, so certain operas are kosher, uh, certain types like Beethoven are not kosher. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is, it, it's sort of like everybody, what, what was her husband's name? O'Connor. Frank O'Connor. Mm -hmm. Frank O'Connor. It's like everybody's saying, I would love to be married to Frank O'Connor. There's no individualistic room in here. Um, we have our taste in people. We have our sexuality, our particular psychology, our quirks. Uh, we have our sense of humor. There's no reason why we should all be the same. And if one is trying to be an individualist, well, is an individualist, that should be most self-evident. Uh, and that includes authors as well. Uh, yeah, there's no reason why everybody should love Dostoevsky. Yeah, I mean, uh, you, for, for me, there's, there's two different questions. So one is, you know, kind of what is the principle behind art? So art is spiritual fuel for human beings to help in Rand's 
view the rational faculty operate well. So you're presenting life as it might be and ought to be, and you know that the for her the superior value of romantic art, therefore. But um, within there's a, there's sort of a broad range that yes, there's going to be individual tastes. You know, you say ice cream. You know, there's hmm. Different flavors and 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 for music, you know, there's different types of music that you can grow up with. There's certain types that are are say atonal to the. I've I've actually heard stories of of dogs. That there's like one particular atonal piece of music that would make this one dog wail constantly or something. You know, that's actually painful um, to hear. And no, this maybe is not life serving in any way. So. You, it's one thing I think to announce that principle and then it would be another to take as a dogmatic edict that you should mimic Rand's preference for living in the city versus living in the country, you know, because you worship skyscrapers versus you like to live by a lake or, or have a huge plot of land that you can go garden or whatever. It just those doesn't things. matter. Yeah, no. it doesn't. I mean, you can find value in both or you can diminish value in both. Uh, the problem with her, for me, uh, with her aesthetics is that uh, uh, their deficiencies bled into areas like sexuality. So uh, homosexuality, because she was not homosexual herself, um, uh, you know, uh, she wrote about all or her, her, the guy she was then having an affair wrote about in very disparaging terms. And not just homosexuality as a concept, but homosexuals. Um, so it becomes highly distasteful. And yeah, as, as, far, as far as I know, in a personal realm, she was not as condemnatory about it. And of course, Leonard Peikoff has also done some work to, um, mm -hmm. you know, kind of change that. And there are well-respected homosexuals within objectivism, working scholars, Good. and things like that, which is a, a beautiful thing. So some of this, you know, you can look back at say founding fathers own slaves. Uh, Ayn Rand at, at least a certain point in her career didn't have a more modern accepting view of homosexuality that maybe she would have had she been born in a different decade in a different country, for example. Uh, yeah. Uh, I, Je I, uh, yeah, uh, Jefferson owned slaves and probably fathered a child with a slave, although he did say he trembled when he reflected that God was a just God. This was not a religious statement as such. Sure. He was a deist, but I mean, he was saying, I know this is terrible. Yes. But you know, here in Virginia, this is how we do business. Mm. I can't get back to Lena Cohen on this. Yes. Um, because when I started out in journalism, writing about music, uh, it was also a period in my life where I would have tremendous arguments about philosophy, uh, which which was which was great for me, uh, and including um, arguments about objectivism and liberalism, small government versus big government. Um, I guess it was an undergrad experience, although I was never an undergrad. I'm, I'm a high school dropout, um, but it was a very useful period where I, where I had to read philosophy and argue philosophy, uh, and a good part of that was with objectivists. Um, and there was one in particular, we used to have the most terrible arguments about Leonard Cohen, because mm -hmm. he was convinced, you know, Leonard Cohen was always a 
part of my life because of my name. Um, uh, I'm actually the only David Cohen in New Zealand, if you can believe it. Oh, wow. Uh, uh, yeah, 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 there were family reasons. I mean, I'm not, not directly related to him, but background, he was from Lithuania and blah, blah. Uh, but I also just love his music, most of his music. Uh, anyway, um, we, we would have these tremendous arguments about Leonard Cohen. Uh, his view basically was that Leonard Cohen was malevolent had a malevolent sense of life, mm. uh, and only a depraved, very Randian word, uh, only a depraved individual would aesthetically respond to Leonard Cohen in any kind of positive. Now, did your, did your friend actually believe this, or was he using it to kind of poke oh, no, you? He, believed, he, he certainly believed it. Hmm. Um, uh, and um, this, we eventually somewhat parted company on this it's probably the only time in my life where a, a musical disagreement became uh, uh, so personal but it was sort of dictatorial as well and it was sort of stupid because it was based on this idea of Leonard Cohen as a morose you know some music to slit your wrists to uh, uh, completely oblivious to the humor and wit and novelistic uh, um, uh, devices and the self-deprecation and the Jewish aspect uh, and the, the, the craft of the songs. Um, uh, this almost made it into my book, but it would have required a big digression about, about Rand and I didn't particularly want to go there. It, it wasn't relevant. It, it is relevant though to um, why um, aesthetics I see as possibly the most problematic um, uh, 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 feature of, um, of, of the objectivists. Now when you talk about the issue of homosexuality I would put that more under psychology or and typically anything else that she's talking about with sexuality I wouldn't necessarily call that aesthetics as much as psychology. I guess there's some overlap. What is it that you find sexually attractive or you know proper to find sexually attractive but that would be psychology and I would draw kind of a strict line between the basic philosophy that Rand enunciates versus you know, aesthetics or, or any of the applications in psychology per se. When, when you talk about the fundamental philosophy of hers, um, are you religious at all yourself personally? Um, I, I used to describe myself as a theist, uh, but a friend of mine who's a professor of uh, religious studies assures me that I'm a deist. Mm. Uh, uh, so it's sort of like Jefferson, okay. um, uh, who's, who's one of my heroes. Um, I, um, I've always been fascinated by religion. Uh, I enjoy writing about it. I enjoy thinking about it. Um, it is a primitive form of philosophy. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I'm uh, very comfortable uh, with people who feel relig religion is tremendously important and, and, and want to throw around ideas and discuss that. Um, I don't, um, as someone who's Jewish, I don't see the contradiction between religion and science. Um, even before the word scientist uh, uh, was 
was part of the language, you know, Judaism about a thousand years ago accepted the, the primacy of science over, uh, well, just the primacy of science, which is why the Semites have done uh, pretty well, all things considered. Uh, um, but, you know, religion is, uh, I mean, they, they, it's, it's tremendously important and, and it's an enthusiasm uh, of mine. Actually, and, why, actually now, and Greek, enthusiasm, of course, in theos means possessed by God. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, philosophy means love of wisdom in Greek. A friend of wisdom, yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. and Sophia. So, um, no. So I'm, so I'm Jewish, and I'm, yeah. I'm a mem member of a, uh, of a synagogue, uh, but I, I also accept the uh, Talmudic. Uh, um, well, actually, it's not uh, Talmudic. I, I, the, the 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 notion that to read anything literally uh, in the in the text of of, of Judaism is itself heretical. Um, so it's a, a, a you know I don't. So uh, so if, if if there were a conflict between any sacred text that you ascribe to as someone who's Jewish and what science is telling you, you would always go yeah, with the science. the science. Okay. Except, but as, as we started off talking about, Amy, uh, um, in the last eight weeks, we've seen the shortcomings uh, uh, um, of, of science, the way that uh, the best scientists, epidemiologists, uh, medical practitioners have been scrambling around mm -hmm. to understand understand the crisis. Okay, so but a certain shortcoming there and I think it it sort of shows how you can you know, the, the the relationship between the two. Of course uh, the facts of reality, you know, data, science, absolutely. Absolutely I mean no no argument in any way, shape, or form. But there is a solace that we can find in other things, um, personally, um, that also is important, or can be important. You, obviously, it is good to know sort of what you know, and what you can control, and what you don't know, and what you can't control, and try to keep those very separate, and confine your focus as much as possible to dealing with those things that you know and that you can control. Um, but I, I don't think that we have seen a shortcoming of science or that somehow science itself has been shown to be deficient. I think because, no. you know, uh, the communist regime in China has kept everyone in the dark at the, from the beginning and withheld so much crucial information about what we're dealing with, there's that. Mm -hmm. If they had come clean, uh, for example, you know, maybe there's some information in that lab that people are finally now starting to accept might have been not the origin in the sense that they were creating some bioweapon or any crazy conspiracy theory, but they had this lab that, you know, the purpose of which was to study these sorts of viruses and that it maybe it leaked out by accident. If China had been forthcoming about this, then maybe all of these scientists, epidemiologists, etc., wouldn't have been caught so flat-footed. And um, that's a, a huge disadvantage. In, in a way, it's, I, 
you know, you'd say it's almost very aggressive on the part of the Chinese to withhold the information when they know that it's them who have been responsible for getting this virus propagated all the way around the world. It's hostile what they've done really. And the fact that, you know, the scientists are scrambling, that's what scientists have to do when confronted with a phenomenon. Thankfully, uh, the universe uh, is not such that we are you know, constantly all the time confronted with phenomena that are both deadly and that little is known about them. If, if that mm. was the constant state of existence, you know, we, you and I couldn't be talking right now. Mm. I, I, I'm, I agree 100%. Um, I'm simply suggesting these are different realms. Uh, uh, you, you know, one, I mean, of course, science is the only basis for um, understanding, uh, you know, the what about yeah. life. Um, but, you know, re religion or philosophy, yeah, yeah, and, uh, using um, the words broadly, uh, um, have some relevance to how. Um, it, it, can, it can make you have more equanimity about the things and the risks and everything that you can't control or know mm. about, maybe. Although I, I shared like Christopher Hitchens's, the late Christopher Hitchens uh, um, dislike or loathing um, of the tendency for many religious people, not, not all, not, not including every thoughtful, kind, decent Christian in this, but for many religionists um, to extend um, their notions about how they should live to how everybody else should live. Um, and that, 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 of course, is the uh, great deficiency. So um, proselytizers are not necessarily your, your favorite. Uh, Ted Cruz had a tweet just a few days ago last week, and it was something to the effect of, um, okay, now I've, you know, made you, you, you're in your house and your schedule is cleared and everything. Now will you listen to me signed God? Okay. Yeah, as, as if, all, well, and it actually ties into what you were saying about lockdown being a religion. He was implying that somehow this is all part of God's plan, that we uh -huh. are all in this lockdown right now, and that somehow there's some message that we're supposed to be getting from God, that right. the only way that we could get it is if this horrible thing happened and we were all in lockdown. And so that's the purpose that we're all serving by being in lockdown right now, is that we're supposed to be receiving a message from God. That would not sort be the of, sort, sort of, of like, uh, uh, I think the Pope said something similar about how this was a, a wake-up call from above, uh, 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 it, which reminds me of a rabbinical conversation uh, in the wake of the Holocaust. And one rabbi says to the other, uh, apropos, you know, the death camps and six million, one rabbi says to the other, uh, where was God? during all this. And the other rabbi responds and says, where was man? Yes. Yeah, you know, yes, so. yes, yes. And when we have seen here in the United States that even in the last week or so, some people have insisted on going to Easter services, mm -hmm. knowing how dangerous it is, but counting on somehow God to help them. And 
you know, I, I have a grandmother who was tremendously influential on me and she was a lapsed Catholic, mm -hmm. went into something called science of mind that is somewhat uh, religious, but not really. She, had, she actually had a statue of Socrates that I have that I love. It's a, um, you know, a beautiful memento of her, but um, she, you know, she would say God helps those who help themselves. That would be her sort of a, you know, approach to it. And like you say, you know, human beings, uh, we need to be taking the steps in the real world. I can understand maybe that some people do find comfort in the ability to have more equanimity during times like these, if there is religion, but it's not going to make me into someone who's going to be a believer. And I'm, I seek secular alternatives. So for example, a meditation practice can help you do this sure. and you can have a meditation practice that doesn't require that you believe in any sort of a higher dimension. But, you know, we got down this just because I wanted to talk about more fundamental issues in philosophy. And so if you do consider yourself a deist, you, insofar as you believe in there's a, you know, a God of some sort and some sort of higher dimension, a heaven maybe that people go to, then you have that fundamental difference with her. We don't necessarily get to aesthetics that far at all, right? Um, because that would be the fundamental question. What sort of universe are we living in and what is our relationship as human beings to things in the universe? Well, her two favorite philosophers, uh, um, well, I don't know how much of a favorite philosopher Thomas Aquinas was, uh, she mentioned him very favorably, uh, but certainly Aristotle. Um, now, Aristotle was a deist. Uh, the Probably notion of a no. prime mover, right. that's Aristotelian. Yes. Um, he argued in his metaphysics uh, yes. for that you, that you can't have an infinite regress of cause and effect. So somewhere um, there's a first. Yeah, and so, and so for her, the, the first is just existence not any sort of a, a prime yeah. mover. So Actually, she departed from Aristotle on that. But when you think about it, it seems to me there's not a lot of difference, or at, least at any rate, there's some similarity between those positions, because whether you, whatever you come back to for your first, you know, the, the prime mover of it all, uh, you're talking about an eternal being. You're, you're either saying existence has always been there or that there's something over and above that. Well, um, but then with a prime mover, you might start to impute motives and things, right, on this prime mover. And so, you know, the, Ted Cruz saying that God has a plan and that's why we're all in lockdown right now. That would be the sort of thinking that you would start to fall into maybe if you believed in a prime mover versus just what is, is, and there is existence out there. And so let's use a scientific sort of approach, you know, evidence um, of the senses and inference thereof. Right. But a deist, a deist would say, I don't actually know, you know, to the question, uh, uh, you, you know, what what was the point in creating all this? I mean, the deist would say, I, I don't know, and I don't think it's actually terribly important. Um, uh, I'm not obligated uh, uh, to say that, you know, because I believe in Aristotle's prime mover, I'm not obligated to tell you how to live. Um, no, I have no. no special insight. Um, how we live is based on the facts of reality now. 
um, it, and you know how we how we arrange ourselves as individuals and societies, etc. Um, the, uh, the diehard religionist, of course, wants to you know put people at the point of a gun. Um, yeah, I mean, you could hypothesize, I suppose, you know, you, there's the, the prime mover who basically set the universe in motion the way that exists as Rand understands it. And practically speaking, there wouldn't be a lot of difference as long as you are of the deist variety where once it was there and set in motion that there wasn't going to be any more interference, God coming in and favoring one group of people over another or any of those things that have caused lots of trouble throughout history. But my point about Rand was that she loved Aristotle, oh. really, you know, rate, rated him. And my, my point is that she, there you have an avowed atheist uh, and, a, and a deist, um, and they actually can coexist uh, uh, philosophically. Um, uh, so, uh, well, yes, it's a, it's a significant difference. Um, but but you can uh, start from you know um, you, you can start from that place and you can end up agreeing on a lot of important things. So in terms of ethics, then what do you see yourself as following? Do you say you, you have a code of ethics? Uh, selfishness, you said, is a you know provocation in the virtue of selfishness. Title is selfishness <laughs> something that you would want to reject? out of hand or you probably understand something about Rand's idea of a rational self-interest that is not the kind that says you know whatever thing I want I can traipse all over everybody else and get it in some sort of a Hobbesian you know steal your neighbor's cow sort of scenario right. um, obviously she doesn't think that's selfish yeah and I, I think probably for me ethics are more a matter of arbitrary preference uh, and I'm like the guy in the joke who, uh, uh, when asked uh, whether he shared Rousseau's view uh, uh, or, or, or the Hobbesian view uh, um, uh, about how we should live uh, in the ethical realm, said, you know, on, well, on Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays, I'm, I'm with Rousseau. Um, uh, Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays, uh, I'm with Hobbes, and Sundays I take off. Uh, so I'm a little, uh, a little like that. Um, my basic disposition uh, would be somewhat chivalrous. I think we should do good by people, and I think we should do good by ourselves. Uh, and uh, the more we value people, uh, perhaps the better we should be. Um, but there's a tremendously good case uh, for acts of charity, uh, not least that uh, uh, they release sort of endorphins or whatever that actually make us feel quite good um, uh, when, we, when we simply do a benevolent uh, act. Um, the issue of compulsion, whether we, we should be compelled to do good, of course, I'm, I don't don't agree with that whatsoever. I'm an individualist. So you do, you do not think that, uh, whereas you think that there's maybe even a virtue that you would describe charity as a virtue personally. No, I would say the virtue of chivalry. Chivalry. Okay. So how do you distinguish chivalry versus charity? 
Well, I'm uh, so, uh, like politically, I would call myself on the chivalrous left. That is, we we do good for those who are less fortunate, insofar as that's possible, uh, and it's not possible in every circumstance. Where I'm not on the left uh, is is this whole utopian idea creating perfect societies, uh, politically correct speech, the whole identity politics thing. I mean, that I find totally uh, repulsive. Um, but the chivalrous, um, the wish to do good by people. But then I, if, you're, if you're talking I, about politically helping out those who are less fortunate politically, hmm then you are talking about forcing charity in a certain way, right? That it would be appropriate for government to force charity via redistribution of wealth in a certain, certain Right, as, as long as we have governments, there is an element of uh, um, redistribution. Uh, and I'm not an anarcho-capitalist. Uh, well, but do you have to be an anarcho-capitalist to reject that as a proper function of government? Yes, you do. You think um, you do? Okay, why? Because you can't have governments without taxation, which itself is coercive. Um, okay, I but saying, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the, the, there's been proposals for voluntary taxation, um, whereby Rand thinks that you could, and I tend lottery. to agree. Well, not, not only just a lottery. So for example, she would, she had envisioned something like a stamp tax where if you had a contract, say, you know, you with, you know, your book was going to be published by a particular publishing house, your contract with the publishing house, do you want that to be enforceable in a court of law? Well, if you do, Mr. David Cohen, then you need to pay a 3% stamp tax, like 3% of the value of the contract or whatever it is. Right. And she thought that you could fund all of the proper functions of government, police courts, military, as she saw it, voluntarily. And then you wouldn't be in a situation where there is compulsion. And it also, you, she would leave all of the decisions about charity, which she thought was proper. She thought charity was proper, but not a duty. Um, she'd leave that up to the private individual. Is that workable to you? Or you think that that would be an immoral system that didn't incorporate redistribution into I just think it's unworkable uh, and I think Rand for the most part as for instance in this uh, interview I held up before the the mm -hmm. Alvin Toffler uh, interview which I recommend anybody who hasn't read it reads it uh, he, he put some of these questions to her as well and I don't think she answered them terribly well uh, she would get frustrated and say Look, I'm not a government planner. I can't tell you how tax works. I can just tell you the principle that people shouldn't pay tax. Well, um, so I don't accept that principle. And, and I think she was putting forward another provocation here that she never particularly explained very well. Yes, of course. It would be wonderful that we don't pay any tax. Um, we don't have a currency. Um, the, the anarcho-capitalist stuff is good. As mentioned, I don't like utopianism. And uh, we're not there. We're not going to get there. I'm not even sure there is de desirable. Um, there are some basic functions, as even Rand 
considered. Um, the only practical way uh, to pay for those is some sort of consumption or, or, or income tax, desirably at a, at, a, at a low rate. As far as I know, George Reisman has done the most detailed work about how you would get there from here and there being a model that would be fully voluntary taxation, which the government performed only those three functions, that it is a workable, doable thing, but that would take a long time to establish and it would take people to actually crunch all the numbers and say what, you and, know. And there are derivatives of, of those three. It's not just three, like what's happening right now. Again, um, now let's say, without being a conspiracy theorist, let's mm -hmm. say that China is deliberately unleash this. I don't believe that. Um, I don't see the evidence. But, but let's say a scenario where state X unleashes bioweapons. Um, within or under the rubric of defense in, in that situation would be massive medical expenditure, which is what, what we're seeing now. Mm -hmm. Because there's an initiation of force, um, to be Randian about this, uh, and but part of the defense of the free citizenry it has to be medical as well um, and it has to be orchestrated in some way because you can't have 50 million people descending on one hospital because of the whole system collapses i mean the, 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 so I that's would... a derivative a derivative of um of, of defense so we're into health now, see, I, I would say if we were in the ideal scenario, we would have a healthcare system that was agile enough to work on this. There is always going to be in a scenario like that some cost and maybe loss of life if it's not possible to defend. But, you know, government could close borders, of course, as we have done with really deadly things like Ebola. And, you know, like I said early on, when we thought we were dealing even with just a really turbocharged flu, it was appropriate to have travel restrictions at a certain point, given the overwhelm of the system. You know, this is one of the good reasons to have borders is to protect you against, uh, you know, deadly contagious diseases that are gonna come in. But that being said, you could limit government's role in this to do some sort of distancing measures as necessary in something like this if something happened to slip in before because they were being nefarious and spreading it to us uh, so i would say closing borders distancing measures of certain kinds depending on the how contagious and how deadly a disease was that those would be under proper functions of government and it would be just as if you know you're also within the borders of a country preventing or not preventing, but addressing criminals insofar as they pose danger to other people. You know, you've very got I, Very difficult to implement that, isn't it? And it, you, even if you allowed some uh, anarcho-capitalist situation where people were dying in the streets of, uh, on the island of Manhattan uh, because they, they were insufficiently insured, uh, you still have the initiation of force principle because they could infect others, and um, it's awfully difficult. No, no, it is it is awful. And the thing is, is that this is, and we go back to our, I think we both agree, this is an emergency. And so 
what I think is, you know, principles that will apply in normal life, which is that government is only doing police courts and military and doesn't have any of these extraordinary roles to play. It's because we're living normal life. We're not in this. And, you know, as you and I know, we don't believe that this is the thing that is a sustainable state where our goal is to get out of this as soon as possible. And at the same time, um, it's not anything that you're trying to, you know, derive life principles. We're not going to make it into a religion either that, you know, COVID now, you know, everything is about, and and they did the same thing after nine 11, right? So after nine 11, we had the Patriot act and the Patriot act should have been a very temporary measure to deal with this, limited emergency and what has it done it's been going on now and renewed and it's insidious and its effects and that's what we don't want to see here what what's your prediction though i mean what are you are you seeing an actual plan to resume in new zealand or not uh we're told we'll have one next week okay Um, and the government so far has been pretty good um um, but but like you, I'm um, apprehensive that uh, this could be used uh, to, uh, um, you know, promote things that I find politically distasteful. Um, you know, um, I want the greatest freedom for the greatest number, um, and I want that everywhere. In that sense, we started off talking uh, uh, about this, um, um, it's another example of how we are all in this together uh, and um, the thing that most of us hopefully share in common um, is that our precious liberties and freedoms uh, are respected, that they continue um, and that the realities of the emergency are not sort of promulgated in, into a limitless future, um, and and the more we can be vigilant against that, uh, the better. Yeah, I think we're all right. And so now that you actually, I think you are probably because you've raised it, and but I, I see what you mean. This idea of a religion of stay home. Hmm. Um, if you take that sentiment that is sort of out there, the religion of stay home, it will make people more receptive to. A continuation, as I said, they just kind of complacently accept that it might be a couple months before they can do the very normal things that they were doing before. How is it that people could accept that? And, you know, for me, it, it is not inconsistent to say, yes, there's an emergency, stay home for a limited period of time. At the same time, the whole focus during that time should be getting back to normal life as soon exactly. as possible. And when we don't see from our leaders a sense of urgency about getting us back to normal life and some concrete plans. Hmm. It, it, it does. It makes you nervous. All I know from Newsom so far in California is that he's says, we're going to do it based on science. And then he has a list of very common sense parameters that he's going to consider in figuring out the plan, but there's no definite plan yet as far as I know. And uh, Right. He he seems relatively sensible. Uh, the guy in New Jersey, Phil Murphy, seems borderline psychotic. Oh, really? Wow. For, well, he was saying people in the same house should distance from each other. Uh, so if you're there with your spouse, 
in bed. Um, <laughs> um, I, I mean, but I, I won't go through the details, but um, this is a, talk about government in the bedroom. Yeah. Um, and Cuomo, as I said, is, seems presidential. So we're gonna, uh, we're... But every day, whether it's New Zealand, California, New York, Great Britain, um, leaders should be apologizing and should be empathizing with their fellow citizens. Look, this is disgraceful. This is, this is, this is terrible, uh, this, but this is an emergency. And by definition, it will end and we promise um, we will go back. The new normal will include the old normal, um, as far as as far as freedoms um, are concerned. To me, the best news that I heard today was that, and it's connected to a piece we already have before, which was that Apple and Google were going to work together to have this app on a phone that would help trace for COVID, and that they say as soon as the COVID emergency is over, the app goes away. So, you know, they're modeling what we wish our leaders would do, which is, yes, there's an emergency. Here's this temporary measure to deal with it. And of course, there's wonderful technology available that can make this anonymous, pseudonymous, whatever. Um, let's put the knowledge in people's hands and give them the, what they need to assess risks for themselves sensibly and we can get back to normal living. And at the same time, the assurance that it's all temporary and we'll get our yeah. freedom back. Yeah. yeah. So for you, you go, you're going to go right now, you're going to, what is it, what's a day in life? You're going to cook, you're going to write, what else? Uh, I've got, um, I've got two of my kids in the house and one has kind of special needs. So I need to spend a bit of time with him, uh, going on a good walk up the hill. Uh, in The Spectator, uh, the magazine, I've um, actually written a bit about this in the issue that comes out tomorrow. Excellent. Um, I, I'll do some cooking and some shopping uh, and a little bit of writing. And I'll uh, footle around on Facebook, probably more than I should. But that's yeah, I, I took half a day off and it was uh, pretty nice actually at one point, but I got really upset because it wasn't so much Facebook, but it was all the news that I had steeped myself in that I was posting on Facebook was getting me upset. And then I just said, hey, I'll just step away from the whole mess. Right. Um, but you write on a daily basis every day, basically? Yes. Monday through Friday, weekends to what? Uh, Sunday through Thursday. Okay. Uh, and I do, if I do 800 words a day, that's a good day. 800 good words. Um, uh, I can get up to a thousand if I really try and that's it. It's diminishing returns. And you are an uh, autodidact author. Yeah. Actually, because you did not graduate from high school. And you've published no. six books. So, yeah, so far. <laughs> um, but, you know, education is a little overrated. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, a great English writer, said he never let education get in the way of his career. And I sort of tried to follow the, the same edict. Uh, and at my point in life, I find it people increasingly strange if they hark back to the uh, college they went to, uh, um, often taught by people whose exposure to life was not terribly much more than that college. 
uh, or, or academic environment. Uh, I consider myself quite fortunate, um, really, for 15 years, uh, I wrote about higher education, um, uh, mainly for the Chronicle of Higher Education in Washington, D.C., back when it was a profitable paper, also for The Guardian in Britain. So I've been, I've visited scores of campuses around the world, including America, uh, spent a lot of time with scholars uh, and researchers, teachers, uh, and, um, you know, the, there's a lot of second-rate stuff happening in, um, in, in higher education, I discovered. Uh, a lot of good things as well. Uh, so I don't think it's a particular advantage or disadvantage to have been uh, exposed to it. And again, as we're seeing at the moment, um, uh, coming up through the scholarly ranks, uh, um, can, you know, Karl Popper said, great men make great mistakes. Mm. Um, and great academics make, can make great mistakes as well. Oh, no, I mean, certainly that's the case that they can. And look at the humanities. Well, yeah. um, my God, I'm, I'm, uh, uh, I'm, I'm genuinely um, grateful uh, that I was not exposed to, um, to some of this piffle. I was a math major. And oh, well, part of, part of it was, yeah, part of it was the desire to escape humanities, but right. and the number, the numbers don't tell us everything, but the numbers don't lie. No, typically not. Now I wasn't in statistics as much. I, I sort of wish I was because it'd be so valuable today, but, uh, but not so much. I want to ask you, because I think probably we are uh, a bit over time of, and yeah, I want to let you bit. get to all the things you, you wanted to do. Mm. So, one question in your music critic career, you have had some interaction with Bono, the lead singer of U2. Can you tell this story? Because I don't completely understand whether part of the story that you posted on Facebook was true or not. I wanted to know. Uh, it is true. Uh, the, uh, 30 years ago, U2 came to Australia and New Zealand. They had just released the album, The Joshua Tree. So I wrote a what we call a thumbsucker piece, sort of contemplating the meaning of U2 in a modern world. Uh, and it was not a very favorable write-up. Uh, and so um, when the band arrived in my hometown, Wellington, New Zealand, uh, and performed the Joshua Tree that night, um, the lead singer, Paul Hewson Bono, uh, took the opportunity to disparagingly read excerpts from my review on stage. Uh, and he was, he was a little unkind himself. And so uh, the, 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 the Irish group um, recently was retouring the Joshua Tree uh, 30 years after and came to New Zealand about four or five months ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so I did another think piece, uh, you know, just reminiscing a little bit about that, uh, about that earlier occasion when, when Bono performed my words, as it were, on stage. And uh, he actually wrote to me 
and apologized uh, for the earlier incident. Uh, and so, so I wrote back and, you know, um, thanked him and, uh, uh, you know, me, I, I said I still, actually he invited me to the show. Um, and Did you go? I couldn't go because I, because all the planes were, mm. were booked out by people going to the U2 show. Okay. Um, but I, I said, uh, I said I still didn't like the album, but I said, you know, if it's any consolation, my son does, uh, which is true. Um, and so that night... What, what don't you like about the album? I used to go running to that album. I thought it was a great album for running. But running to Stand Still. Uh, well, isn't not that, just that one. Yeah, all right. Uh, well, I think it would be a very good album for, uh, for running because all the songs sort of meander forever. That was my criticism. The other part was that it's a very sex-less album. Mm. Uh, but just to end the story with a couple of words, I mentioned my son uh, really, yeah, yeah, you know, quite enjoys some, some of the band songs. So he, um, on stage the next night in New Zealand, of course, he, uh, he, he sort of starts rapping about my son in a very nice way, sort of dedicated a song to him. So, so we're all pals now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's a, it's a nice story, and I do like a few of the U2 songs, just n not the ones on that LP. Which ones do you like? The one about New Zealand, One Tree Hill. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I like, I think Beautiful Day is uh, inspiring. Uh, and uh, I like the song One. Okay. Yeah, so, okay. so they're okay. Okay, well we'll... Uh, chat some more about music. I'm not going to take any more of your time right now, but thank you for thank telling you, that story. And everybody, if you want to go find David's work, and maybe I assume you do editorial services for people. Is this true? I do. That's why it's called editorialservicesnewzealand.com. What do you do in, in that? Do you uh, actually I, just, yeah. I give you a manuscript and you edit it, or is it? I edit manuscripts, so I, I do, uh, um, you know, give editorial advice, I do just basic line editing, copy editing, um, or what we call sub-editing over here. Uh, um, so that's, a, um, that's partly how I pay my mortgage. Okay. Coaching, keeping people accountable who are trying to write their books, any of that stuff or no? I'm sorry? Accountability on people who are writing books, do you do that kind of thing? Slave driving, yeah. in other words. Oh, me? No. Yeah. No, you don't do any of that stuff. Okay. No. No. Okay. I, that's what I, I need somebody to get me uh, to the desk. I guess. Have oh, to I me. see. <laughs> All right. I'll keep that in mind. Well, no, I mean, you know, you could, you could expand. You can use this COVID era to expand the services that you offer as well, right? Okay. Everybody's doing it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. yeah. Amy, thank you very much for okay. your time. I've really enjoyed it. Um, and I, I hope I've kind of I mean, I've enjoyed it both ways, so, um, not just pontificating, but listening to your uh, thoughts and ideas as well. Yeah, and I'll see you on Facebook, and I'm sure we'll discuss and debate some more now that I know more about where you're coming from. So it's excellent. Sure we will. Okay. Take care, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. I'm going to end right now.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.